Hi, my name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside. Welcome to our online service. As we turn to God's word, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we're able to gather under your story, under your word, together as your people, although apart, still united by the power of your spirit. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is the last sermon in our series, When Jesus Speaks. And as we've seen, Jesus says some incredible, or depending on your perspective, challenging things about himself. And we've been looking at what Jesus said about himself because we wanna be grounded in who he is during this uncertain season of COVID-19. And so we hope this series has been helpful to you, but there's still one last I am statement we're gonna look at, and it's in John 15, and there Jesus says, I am the true vine. And I love this passage. In fact, it's one of the cornerstone passage of my doctoral research. And there's a lot in this passage of John 15 that I'm just not gonna be able to cover in one sermon as much as I wish I could. So if you see things in this passage that I don't address, it's not that I'm avoiding it, I'm just gonna focus us in in verse five. So if you have questions, reach out, I'd love to dialogue. Uh, and I hope in the future to preach an entire series on this one passage. But for now, let's read John 15, verse five, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So let's consider four things together. The vine, branches, abiding, and nothing. So we'll begin with our first point, the vine. Uh, if you're familiar with our version of the daily offices that we put out every year, you'll know that throughout 2020, we've been praying this very verse as our invitation. Every morning, you start your morning prayer with these words. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then the next step in the daily offices is to be quiet, to still yourself, to meditate on these words to chew on them, to, to let them impact you. And day after day throughout the entire year, you're dwelling on this verse. And over time, it's going to shape how you see God, how you see yourself, and how you approach life. And if you engage in this practice, it's going to start to impact you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if we stick into the realm of botany, this makes sense. But when we start to apply this to ourselves, we have some questions, don't we? Really? Like, I can't do anything apart from Jesus? That doesn't seem true of my experience. So what does Jesus mean? What, what does he mean when he says we can't do anything apart from him? I want you to hold that question in your mind throughout this sermon. We're going to come back to it at the end. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But here's why he can make that big claim. First, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if we backtrack to verse one, he actually says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
And so in sticking with the botany metaphor, Jesus reminds us that we're branches and we can't flourish apart from the vine that gives us life. It makes sense, but what does it mean for Jesus to be the vine, let alone the true vine? If a humble gentleman came to you dressed in a Canadian tuxedo and he said, I am the true maple leaf, what would that mean to you? Well, maybe he's implying that he is the true Canadian. He's everything Canada is meant to be embodied in denim. The vine is to ancient Israel uh, what the maple leaf is to Canada. It's a nationalistic symbol. Uh, For example, one of the poets of Israel celebrated the nation's history in Psalm 80. And here's what that psalmist wrote. God transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And it took root and filled the land. And the mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. So Israel in this poem is a a vine and as a vine the nation was meant to take root and fill the land and spread throughout the earth with its branches and this was the nation's call. The nation was meant to become a light of God's salvation for all of the world to see that the other nations might see the goodness of God in Israel and come to believe in the one true living God. But as we read throughout scripture, in heartbreaking fashion, Israel persistently failed to live up to this call. They had moments of success and profound moments of disappointment. And the prophet Isaiah laments this. He says that God came to the vineyard looking for fruit, but there was just sour grapes, bad fruit. And the poem of Psalm 80 shares in this lament. The the poet cries out, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root of your right hand, the sun you've raised up for yourself. So the psalmist longs for God to raise up Israel, the true vine, God's son. So if we keep this in mind, our passage in John 15 starts to sound a little different. It's not just a fun botany metaphor. It actually has deep nationalistic undertones. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, we can hear him saying, I am the true Israel. We can even hear him saying, I am God's true son. Jesus is saying that everything Israel was meant to be and failed to be, he is. He is the embodiment of Israel's calling as a nation. He is the vine with branches that will spread throughout all the earth so that all of the nations can come to see the goodness of God and his salvation in his son. So as the vine, Jesus is saying he is the salvation of God for all people, for every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And this would have been very hard for the Jewish disciples of Jesus to wrap their head around. Because for their whole life, they were raised being taught and believing that being ethnically Jewish made you God's people. 
And yes, there were some exceptions. You know, there was the occasional Gentile who was interested in Israel. They called these people God-fearers. And they would learn about Israel and convert to Judaism. But to do so, they had to take on all the marks of the law. They had to look the part. So although they were not ethnically Israel, they had to adopt the lifestyle and ways of Israel with such rigor that they would appear to be a true Israelite. As we celebrate Pentecost today, we remember that the birth of the church and the movement of Christianity immediately started overthrowing social political realities and distinctions. There is no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female. On the day of Pentecost, as we read about in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God fell on all the people present. A beautiful and wonderfully diverse gathering of people. Nationality or skin pigmentation or gender did not matter. The Spirit fell upon them all without distinction. You see, Pentecost is a deeply political event. We can't get around it. It's the great equalizer. It declares that no ethnicity or race has special access to God's presence and goodness because God's desire is for all nations to be reconciled to him. And in being reconciled, God isn't after uniformity. We see throughout the book of Acts that Gentiles didn't have to become Jews and Jews didn't have to become Gentiles, that they could maintain the beautiful things that make them distinct and yet be united in the true vine. And this is possible because God isn't Jewish any more than God is Caucasian. And as Peter came to see this for himself, he wrote these words after visiting a Gentile's home, which would have been forbidden in ancient Israel. And Peter says, I understand now that God shows no partiality but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. These are astounding words from a man who is raised to believe that if you are ethnically Jewish, that's what mattered in God's sight. And that is the power of being grafted into the true vine by the Spirit. Each nation, every tribe, every language can reflect the image of God in a unique way so long as they are grafted in and nourished by the true vine. So if we're going to be people of Pentecost, which is a tall order, if we're going to be people of the Spirit as we've been praying today, we must repent of and reject all forms of racism. It is not enough to say you are not racist. As followers of Jesus, we must declare that we are anti-racism because of Pentecost, because God wants all people to know him and belong to him without showing partiality or distinction to the things that we can see about them. If we're going to breathe in the spirit of God, then we must lament and seek justice for the words that no one should have to cry. I can't breathe. If we're going to claim to be people of God's spirit, we must renounce and act 
against this increase of hate crimes throughout Metro Vancouver toward the Asian community. You see, any form of racism is an affront to the gospel and the character of God because it rejects the inherent and celebrated diversity of God's people. Because the vine nourishes a new way of being human. So having considered the vine, let's move to our second point, the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And in our passage, the branches go through this process of pruning. The vine dresser, who represents God the Father, prunes the branches connected to his vine. And he does this so they can bear fruit. If you've ever been to Victoria in the past 10 years, you would know that the Empress Hotel was once covered in English ivy. Uh, And as part of their renovations back in 2015, they removed this invasive English ivory. They talked about the Empress was getting her hair did. And this wasn't a first either. Uh, Back in 1989, the Empress had to remove a 60-foot ball of ivy from the soil that was causing damage to the building. You see, as an invasive vine, English ivy just grows and grows. It's just incredibly unruly above ground and below ground. And that's the way it is for many varieties of vine. They require ongoing maintenance and pruning because they can become a tangled mess. They can grow in on themselves. And so you cut it back and you prune the branches. You direct its pattern of growth. You prune its nature to bring about its beauty. You prune its nature to bring about its beauty. So when we're connected to the vine, when we're connected to Jesus, God the Father prunes us. He prunes our nature to bring about his beauty and our beauty. Because left to our own devices, we make a mess of things, don't we? Like branches of invasive vines, we turn in on ourselves and we often thwart our own flourishing and other people's flourishing. And so we need God's continual refinement, his pruning to root out everything in us that fails to reflect his goodness into the world. So God will cut away every racist thought and perspective and joke and action. God will cut away our hatred and judgment. God will cut away our arrogance and prejudice. God will cut away our selfishness and passivity. And should we refuse to participate in God's pruning process, Jesus has some weighty words for us in verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, He's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Or in the words of Johnny Cash, if we don't submit to this pruning process of God, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. So pruning is not always comfortable, but it's always necessary. Because in pruning us, the branches, God brings about our true purpose our true beauty. He brings about real love and complete joy. Do you recall the role of the branches in Psalm 80? The poet says, the branches of the vine reached as far as the sea, it shoots as far as the river. 
God prunes us so that we can grow and spread throughout the earth, reflecting his love and goodness and joy into the world, bringing about his purposes. But in order to be pruned, in order to bear fruit, we have to abide in him. That's what the passage says. In order to have everything removed from us in this ongoing process of identifying and renouncing things that rob us of life and flourishing, we must first abide. So let's look at our third point, abiding. Any person can abide in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That's part of the news we celebrate on Pentecost. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is or your history or your sordid past or how moral or how immoral you are. Any person can abide in Christ, the true vine. But what does it mean to abide? I immediately think of the big Lebowski, the dude abides, man. But what Jesus has in mind isn't a Coen Brothers film. He says, abide in me and I in you. And he gets more specific in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So in abiding, Jesus is saying, make your whole identity my love. My love is big enough to be your whole identity. The branch connected to this vine is nourished by love. And we could say when God the Father prunes the branch, it's motivated and driven by love to see the branch bear fruit. And so this movement of God's love toward us is supposed to define who we are. We're beloved, we're cherished, we're loved. And we can know and experience God's love for us. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul prays that the church may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that we can know God's love, the fullness of God, in a way that is less cognitive and rational and more contemplative and experiential. Let me put it this way. You can know the idea that God loves you, and that's important, and you can also know and experience that God loves you. As a mentor of mine used to say that the God of the universe is crazy about you. And so as we abide in Christ, this is the identity held out before us. We're participants in the love that has always flowed back and forth within the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the love God has for us is rich and magnificent and unending. And his love is so big and grand that Paul first prays that we need to be strengthened to even comprehend it. And when we do, when we know it, when we experience it, it changes our lives. On the night before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. gave one last speech, which many now see as a premonition. In his speech, Martin Luther alluded to Moses' experience at Mount Nebo. Now, if you're not familiar with Moses' life 
and story at the end of his life, after 40 years of leading people through the wilderness, Moses was taken up Mount Nebo. The Lord took him up a mountain one last time. And there from Mount Nebo, Moses got to see the promised land, the land that Israel had been journeying out of Egypt toward, this promise that God would have a place for them. And Moses got to see the promise, but he wasn't permitted to enter into the land. There on Mount Nebo, Moses breathed his last and returned to the presence of God. He came close to the promise, but he didn't get to enter it. And so at the crescendo of his speech, the night before his assassination, Dr. King alludes to this story, and here's what he said. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And God allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now what Moses experienced and what Dr. King experienced doesn't make sense unless you know it for yourself. Moses spent 40 long years with a grumbling people traveling through a barren wilderness, spurring them on with the promise that God had a land flowing with milk and honey for them. He endured hardship and toil and strife, but he did not enter the promised land for himself. Dr. King led a cultural and political revolution and endured unfathomable hardship as he sought liberation and justice for African Americans. He endured physical assaults and imprisonment and threats against his life, but he didn't get to enter the promised land, the liberation he sought for himself. And yet, he could say, I'm happy tonight. God fulfills his promise. This is always true. But whether or not we see the promises of God fulfilled for ourselves in this life, the presence of God is enough. Moses and Dr. King knew this. And this conviction can only be cultivated when we abide with Christ, when we know and experience and are sustained by his love. That even though we see promises of God, even though we see realities that we hope will manifest in this world here and now, there's a deeper and better promise, God himself. So please don't get your wires crossed on this point. I'm not inviting us to retreat from public life. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't pursue uh, liberation or reform or greater equity and justice for all. Dwelling with God doesn't mean disengagement from the weighty and important matters of life. That certainly wasn't the case for Moses, and it was definitely not the case for Dr. King. However, it's from a place 
of God's remarkable and all-sufficient love gripping and holding us that we move toward the world in loving action, that we begin to put the commandment of Christ into practice. Because here's what Jesus says in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. And again, he says in verse 17, these things I've commanded so that you will love one another. We love from the reservoir of God loving us. We must know God's love for us personally to develop the resilience we will need to pursue his love in this broken and suffering world. And we might not see the kingdom of God manifest in the way we hope in our lifetime. But when we know God's love, we can persevere with resilience, pursuing what we do not see but know is a reality because we know the presence of God for ourselves. And so the important question then is, how do we abide? How do we abide with Christ? Well, first, we keep his commandments. But what I don't mean is that we just white-knuckle it and keep a bunch of tough rules and regulations. Uh, instead, as John writes in one of his letters, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded. That's it. That we would believe and love. But belief or faith, it doesn't mean we just believe the right things about Jesus. Of course, it matters what we think about Jesus. It matters that we align our minds and hearts with the truth of how he's revealed himself and how it's been written down for us. But faith is also about loyalty and allegiance. Faith is also about loyalty and allegiance. Jesus has loved us with an unending love. He took the initiative to pursue us. He invites us to be connected to him, the vine. He offers us a flourishing we cannot find anywhere else or within ourselves. He brings us into his presence. And daily, we make a commitment to renew ourselves, to align ourselves to him to be present to his presence, to walk in his ways. That is what it means to believe and have faith. Our loyalty and our allegiance is to Jesus and his ways. So this is part of how we abide. We give ourselves again and again to Jesus and his way of love. But abiding happens through an ongoing pattern of retreating and returning. So first we retreat. We step away from the busyness and the hustle of life. We step away from all the distractions and the demands and we withdraw to be present to the presence of Christ. And usually that just involves solitude and quiet and stillness. You might have to leave your regular space to do it or you might have a space within your home that works for you, but you withdraw and you spend time with Jesus. You listen you present yourself to him. You share your heart and your concerns. You might meditate on a passage of scripture slowly. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. And you chew on that. And you repeat it. And you repeat it. And you ask the Spirit to help that truth sink deep into your being so that you can know and experience 
God's love. But in our current age, this practice of solitude, this practice of retreating to be with Jesus is increasingly hard because the way screens and social media operate, they actually change our brains so that we're used to doing something and it being easy and quick. We see a ping and it triggers an endorphin rush in our brain. We get a little hit of dopamine. We're addicted to immediate results. And so when we withdraw to be with Jesus, we find that within two minutes, we're already wondering if we've gotten another email. Within five minutes, we're already itching just to look at our phone. And so we have to commit to this process by turning off these distractions and fighting through this temptation to be divided in mind and heart and asking the Lord to build within us a resilience to spend enough time with him so we can cut away the clutter, not to earn his love. It is never that, but to be present to him, the one who is love, whose love for us has never changed, but we just get distracted and distant from it. And so a lot of the work of retreating is to bring our attention, our wandering minds, back to the truth again and again that God loves us, that God is with us, that God is for us in Christ. As Francis de Sales put it, even if you did nothing during the whole time of prayer, but bring your heart back and place it again in our Lord's presence, though it went away every time you brought it back, your time will be very well employed. And so we create patterns of retreating to be with Jesus. We create daily patterns. And as we get accustomed to having morning and evening patterns of retreat, you might look at once a week having a slightly longer time, once a month taking a day, once a year maybe doing a little retreat. But start simple. Start with 10, 15 minutes in the morning and in the evening. And let the quality of your time with Jesus turn into quantity. Because as you're with him, you'll want to be with him more. So the first pattern is retreating, but returning. We're not asking everyone to hit the eject button on life, but we retreat so that we can enter into life in a different way. Because as we dwell with Jesus, as we experience his love for us, we then have the reservoir to go out into the world and to love as he commands us to love. Because Jesus wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to bear the fruit of his love in community and for the sake of the world. Look what he says in verse 16. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So what is fruit? We abide and, and fruit appears. What is the fruit? First, it's love. It's that simple. The fruit tastes like love. It's an experience of God's love. But second, the fruit is love on the move. Because God's love moves toward us, we experience it in ourselves, and God's love moves through us toward the world. God's love is always on the move. And third, God's love burns brightly. And that's what joy is. God's love burning brightly through us. So the fruit God develops in us is this. His love on the move, burning brightly in and through us for the sake of the world. 
And that's the promise. Look at verses 11 and 12. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. We abide and we go. We retreat and we return. And this is how we step into real love and complete joy. And so if branches of the vine, as Christ's love nourishes us, and we bear fruit and bear witness to the world, it can look like a lot of different things. It can look like continuing in the good work and toward the vision cast by Martin Luther King Jr. in seeking justice for those who still suffer from systematic racism or seeking to change policy or bring awareness or marching in the causes that matter or pouring your energy and your time into being with the marginalized and caring for the addicted or bringing comfort to those who are grieving and joining in people's lament. It can look like visiting the hospitalized or caring for the brokenhearted. It can look like seeking to love your family well and your friends well and seeking to do your job in an honorable way. It can be patiently and gently helping people come to know the goodness of God and his son, Jesus Christ. These are just a few small examples of how we can bear fruit, how we can step into the command to love one another. And as we retreat to be with Jesus, he will show us individually and as a collective, as a church, what he wants us to do, how he wants us to step forward and back into the world with his love for the sake of other people's goodness. But let's not skip past the fact that Jesus asks us first to love one another. So he's actually speaking to his disciples first. He's speaking to his followers that the church is actually meant to be the training ground in which we learn how to love as Christ has loved us. And it's incredibly inconvenient because in the church, we can't escape people who are different than us, people who are unlike us, people who share different perspectives than us, people who might even rub us the wrong way. And this is where we learn to love with that radical love, recognizing that God so loved the world that he reconciled every person in all their distinction and uniqueness and difference to himself through his son. And so it's within the church that we learn to love, we practice loving, and we build up this resilience to be sent out into the world to pursue love for the sake of others. So finally, our last point, nothing. Let's look at verse five once more. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So back to our question, is that true? Well, I think it is. We cannot love the way Christ loved or bear his fruit apart from him. It's just not possible. And while we might be able to accomplish many things apart from him, we might pursue good initiatives, we might be relatively good people, we might love other people, we might show compassion when it's compared to his way of love, it falls short. It's not the same. Apart from Jesus, it's not possible to walk in his way of love because his way of love is the way of self-sacrifice and enemy-loving and race-reconciling love. 
It's not defined by human standards or experience. Jesus invites us to love others, not as we think they should be loved, but to love as he has loved us. It's a love that walks toward a cross to reconcile with enemies, to bear other people's sins, and to forgive. And today on Pentecost, of all days, we remember that the Christian life is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. We cannot love as Christ has loved us without his Spirit filling us and animating our lives so that we can be ambassadors of his love within our community and for the wider world. And so that's why we pray with some urgency, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing because we don't want to just pretend we're like Christ. We want his spirit to dwell richly in us. We want to know his love here and now, and we want to be transformed into his likeness so we can live in this world as agents of his love. And that's what it means for Jesus to be the true vine. Whoever abides in him joins God's love on the move, burning brightly in and through us for the sake of others. And that's the invitation Christ says, abide in me and I in you.